Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Digital Killed the Radio Star. Uh, here with Chris. Uh, Chris, we're talking on the phone tonight. Uh, temperatures are dropping and getting ready for Thanksgiving. It's that time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Football, cold weather, and, uh, and a lot of food. Uh, before we go any further, I do want to ask everybody to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed, on Instagram at Digital Killed the Radio Star, and on um, iTunes and SoundCloud. You can uh, subscribe to our podcast and uh, leave us a five-star review. That will really help. We've gotten some some more, and uh, we're starting to be linked up with other podcasts, which is uh, what we're going for. Uh, that really helps us a lot. So I do want to thank everybody that listened to our last podcast on Drive-By Truckers. It was our most downloaded podcast ever. And uh, so I know there's a lot of Drive-By Truckers fans probably listening to us again. So thank you, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy uh, this episode. Yeah, apologies that we drifted so far from you know drive-by truckers, but that's what we do. Yeah, so I mean, we we may be Megadeth next week, and maybe Steve Earle the week after that. You just don't know. Um, when Chris and I started uh, thinking about this podcast, this is an episode that we eventually wanted to uh, to build to. And Chris and I have talked uh, on numerous podcasts about you know music from the '80s, the hard rock, uh, glam, whatever you want to call it, was kind of our gateway drug, and our, our our tastes have changed, you know, to other things, but we still, uh, that's still kind of our gateway drug music, so it's, I guess it's kind of like your, uh, you know, your your first love or whatever. You never completely uh, get over it. It's nostalgia. Yeah. You know, and it's, it just, it, like we talked about before, you know, it's, as Butch Walker said, music puts that time stamp on your brain, and it just, I mean, we hear that stuff, and it takes us back to where you were, you know, lay in front of our stereo, but. 13 12 13 years old you know it's just it'll always be there so we'll always have a love for it we just like you said we've kind of moved on a bit but still love those records and th- there was a type of music a style of music that took over in the early 90s um you know called grunge that um i, I would say chris i don't know if you would agree with this or not in our lifetime was probably the biggest swing of the pendulum in, in, in music that was that was identifiable to like an exact moment? Yeah, easily, because, you know, I've said before that, you know, um, it, it just in my opinion, and it, it doesn't matter whether you like them or not, I, I don't know that anybody can debate that Nirvana's the most important band since the Beatles. You know, and that was, I mean, that they represent grunge. You know, and that was, I, I really don't think there would have been a more... It was the most important of our lifetime that we've seen Nirvana, and we probably won't see another one that big again. You know, there's not that many, like, the Beatles and Nirvana that come in and just change everything. You just upset the Radiohead fans that were listening when you said they're the most important band since uh, the Beatles. Yeah, well, sorry, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Just like, you know, saying you love the Beatles, you might upset Stones fans, and I love the Stones, but the Beatles right. are the most important. Well... Chris, uh, I have uh, in my notes here, I say that uh, many people say that grunge killed, killed glam. Well, did it? Uh, we're going fi- fi- to figure that out uh, as this podcast goes along. Uh, so in the uh, early 80s, when MTV uh, got on the air and started gaining popularity, uh, there was a wave of bands that uh, were very successful on MTV. And I, ha- I have the main ones here as Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Rat, and Def Leppard. Um, and, and they were what were considered, you know, glam rock. And uh, sorry, uh, Def Leppard fans that 
think they're they were originally the new wave of British heavy metal. They were they were glam. Uh, yeah, they may have started out that new wave was British heavy metal, but <laughs> they finished glam. Yeah, they yeah they and they still are. And so what happened was MTV and the uh, rock radio stations just really started pushing this music. And you, you go no further than just look at like the success that Rat had. They, they were an MTV-created band, essentially. And I don't know about you, Chris, a lot of times I think people overlook just how big Rat was there for about a four- or five-year stretch. They were, if they weren't as big as Motley Crue, they were close. You know, the difference between the two is Motley Crue's success was was much longer sustained than Rat. Right. Um, yes, they were they were about as big as the crew. I mean, it was it was close. Yeah, and really when, when Rat started going down is when Motley Crue hit their you know, the height of their popularity with Doctor Feelgood. That was about the time that I guess Robin Crosby got sick and Rat was kinda on the uh on the downswing but And it almost feels like the crew was a build up, you know, because mm-hmm. you you know you they too fast was kind of still i mean fairly unknown and then shout came out they started gaining fans theater of pain got big girls got really big and then they just blew up to the you know biggest band in the world basically with uh dr feelgood and i don't believe that rat really had that it seemed like rat just came more out of the gate big and then they just kind of started waning off that so i think that that may be why the crew got we think of them differently yeah, so for people out there that are younger than us and weren't, you know, obviously paying attention with it, Rat was Rat was very, uh, very big. Chris, I have here that uh, in 1986, she had kind of two of the, I guess you would call seminal albums of, of Glam, or at least that were very important. I have uh, Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. That, that album sold 12 million copies, and now... Like you and I were talking before we went on air, he'll swear he's not glam, but those those first four or five albums for sure were glam sound and a glam, very very glam look, and you know cookie cutter MTV uh, videos by them. Also in 1986, the band that is kind of considered the poster child for glam, Poison released "Look What the Cat Dragged In," and this album sold four million copies and really. You know, they had the the cover where it looked like four girls instead of four guys. And the videos, you know, for Talk Dirty to Me and, uh, oh gosh, uh, I Won't Forget You, um, you know, were all over MTV. And they really, they embraced, they probably embraced that image as much or more than anybody else did. Don't you agree? Yeah, definitely. You know, they were, I mean, they were the, they seemed to come out with the, the most androgynous look of any of the bands and um you know whereas talking about rat bands like that they wore a ton of makeup but they tried to have a little bit of a an edge to them their look poison came out and they just looked like chicks yeah and you know (laughs) they were they were they were huge and right after they released uh look what the cat dragged in def leppard released hysteria now that sold over 25 million albums so that's more than Slippery When Wet and Look What the Cat Dragged In sold combined. One of the impressive things about Def Leppard's Hysteria, I believe they either had six or seven singles off of that chart, you know, in the top 40. And there was a there was a solid two years where you couldn't turn on MTV and there was not a Def Leppard video on. Especially from, you know, the Hysteria album. So yeah. 
one of the other high points I have here is uh, Poison released Open Up and Say Ah, which had the power ballad uh, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. Now, previously to this, you didn't hear a lot of acoustic guitar on hard rock, you know, albums on, on ballads. And they had, it, you know, had a little bit of a wink and a nod to country music, I guess, with uh, the acoustic guitar. But this song became number one on the charts. And uh, Chris, your thoughts on this. That make that becoming number one on the charts kind of almost sealed the deal for the cookie cutter um, cookie cutter bands and uh, singles that were about to start. It created a formula, and the formula was: you come out, a band comes out, and when they're making it, you know, we're, we keep talking about bands like say Rat, and even you can look at Motley Crue, the first couple of records, they didn't have ballads on them. They come out with these ballads. And it's almost like the band has to have that ballad go on their album. And typically, you're going to release, you know, a single that's going to be a little bit rocking. An anthemic single. Yeah, you hit them with that ballad next. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was a formula that every band followed to that point. I mean, you couldn't buy an album if it and it didn't have, you know, the just a stereotypical ballad. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a must. And I, I'm sure labels wouldn't consider... I'm, I'm sure there were bands that probably didn't even want to put out a ballad. But the labels weren't going to have that. That was the moneymaker. Well, and in the, in the record companies were bringing in all of these outside writers like Desmond Child and David Foster. And uh, oh, who was the woman that was so big back then? Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Diane? Yeah, I know who you're talking... I do know who you're talking about. Right. But I don't... I, I, but I don't, I don't know the name. You know, like they come in and write ballads for Kiss and, and Aerosmith and, and, and things like that. And it's like you said, there was this formula. The first single was going to be, a great example of this is the first Skid Row album. Youth Gone Wild is the first single off. Big anthemic song that's just built for arenas. Well, then you release, you know, 18 in Life and I Remember You. And, you know, you get the girls with I Remember You, especially 18 in Life to some degree. And if you would, from then on, those bands, that's basically the formula that they followed. And they, you know, it seemed like, I'm sorry, it seems like a lot of times, too, the bands, and I'm, I know we'll get to the, you're going to get more in this direction of bands, too, but take a band like, uh, this is just what comes to mind. Take a band like Firehouse, their, their first single, Don't Treat Me Bad, didn't really do much. And then the ballad was just huge. And it seemed like there was a lot of that where they'd released that first little rocker. And it really didn't do much. It was almost like, but you had to do it. It was the rite of passage. You had to release something that wasn't a ballad, you know. Because and there's a lot of bands we looked at. I mean, even Skid Row. I mean, Youth Gone Wild was not a big song, right? In retrospect, it seems big, yeah, but it wasn't. Yeah, and like we said, they they just followed the formula to the T, and it got to be so big that even White Snake com- completely changed their sound and image to fit this. You know, previously to the self-titled uh, 87 album, you know, White Snake was you know, an offshoot of, essentially offshoot of uh, Deep Purple. I think John Lord even played, you know, uh, organ for White Snake. It was Snake. very Deep Purple Led Zeppelin. Yeah, very blues-based. And uh, for a lot of people may not know, Here I Go Again was actually recorded several albums before. Yeah. And, and they recorded that song three different ways to release there was an album version, 
there was a version that they put on the radio, and there wound up being a third. Uh, of, well, they had the third version because they had the original, and you know that was that song was completely changed up. White Snake was that '87 album was huge, you know, and you, you had Here I Go Again, Is This Love, uh, in the Still of the Night. You know, they kind of followed the the same formula as everybody else, and they were think about what Van Halen became once they got Hagar, right? Yeah, even you know, I mean, it, they were all their hits were ballads. Yeah, even even you know the mighty Van Halen had that happen. So what what was happening was most of these bands were coming from the Sunset Strip. Now they weren't all necessarily from California. You had bands like Poison that moved to the West Coast, and you know, and but that seemed to be the big hub of where you went to get signed. Of course, you had some East Coast bands like Cinderella and uh, Skid Row that got signed, but everybody went to the um, the Strip. And so you started seeing bands like L.A. Guns, Faster Pussycat, Bullet Boys, Warrant, and Skid Row. They were kind of that next wave that got uh, that all got signed. And in the case of some of those, I think Bullet Boys, I think they, I don't think they had even played very many shows before they got signed. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me because Mark Torian was just a staple in that scene. Yeah, he, he was originally in Rat, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a guitarist. I mean, he was he was a lead player. So, and it was kind of funny. I mean, you watch all the old, you watch the old videos to see any performances of them live. Torian never even played guitar, and he was a really good lead player. He yeah, just took I mean, her on vocals, and, and now if yeah, I, I saw them, I saw them God, probably about a year ago, and Torian plays guitar the whole time, and he does a lot of solos. He's a very he's a good player. He's a very good musician, um, and had a, in my opinion, had a great voice. And it just kind of shows you that this, the singers didn't even, uh, you know, they didn't. Okay, I'll give you an example. Like uh, Brother Kane. I know they're not glam, but they you know, they kind of came out at the, at the end of that and it had a little bit of a crossover type sound. But I remember it was so bizarre to me that here's you know, Damon Johnson playing guitar. Because yeah. none of the front men did. And yeah. it was time for the ballad. Unless it was, you know, Poison on Every Rose Has Its Thorn and on Fallen Angel. Other than that, you know, Brett didn't. And, uh, and, and Snail, same old situation. Yeah, and Joe Elliott would play it on uh, Hysteria. But other than that, you know, I, I can't remember... You know, Janie Lane would play acoustic, but you're right. I, I can't remember anybody else that did that. Yeah, it's almost like it was unacceptable. So this next wave, which was the, the most successful, in my opinion, were Skid Row and Warrant, as far as from record sales. They followed the same formula. Warrant released Down Boys first, and then they released Heaven and Sometimes She Cries. So Skid Row and Warrant uh, blew up with their first album, and this is about the time that Motley Crue released Dr. Feelgood. It was their best-selling album. They were newly sober, um, and the album was very well recorded. It was very. Some people may say it's too polished. Uh, I'm a big fan of Doctor Feelgood. Are you? I know you're you're a bigger Crew fan than I am. So interesting to get your thoughts. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I like it a lot. It's it's um, you know, especially if we're just talking strictly Vince, which that is, you know, I mean, let's face it, that is Motley Crue. Um, yeah, I probably put it as the number three album, you know, just because I put Too Fast and Shout above it. Right. But you know, I, I I put it I put it above all their other big smash records for sure. I like it. So it was about this time that the other big kind of event happened. Warrant released their second album, Cherry Pie. Now, if you read about this album, they had the album in the can, were ready to go. The um, Record company said we 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 don't see a hit on it because 
they had songs like Uncle Tom's Cabin that were that were more serious. And Janie Lane basically just went and scribbled down Cherry Pie in, in just a small amount of time and came, you know, came back and they recorded. Of course, the video was huge. You had his wife, Bobby Brown, was in it. Uh, if you see anything about Glam, uh, any specials, they're always going to feature a snippet of that video. Um, and also at this time, Poison would go on to release Flesh and Blood, which I was surprised. Chris, it sold over 7 million copies. I kind of thought Open Up and Say I would have sold more than it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe so, just because of Every Rose Has a Storm. But you got to think, you know, when that when Flesh and Blood came out, you know, Something to Believe In was probably about as big. Yeah. If, you, if you really think about it, it's probably as big. You just don't think about it now because it seems like anytime if you're going to listen to some classic, you know, hair metal show or put on you know, Hair Nation or anything like that, it's going to be, you know, every rose. That's the one they're going to play. But I don't know that it was if it was if it was bigger than if it was bigger than, than something to believe in. It wasn't by much. And, and here's the thing. So you had some. That album was a follow up to that. So that album gained more fans, and then you release a song like "Something to Believe In." Then you have "Unskinny Bop," which is was a huge single. No, I mean that doesn't really surprise me. I guess when I think when I break it down. Yeah, it just I don't know for some reason it, it kind of shocked me. But so that album comes out, and now we're starting to see some of the the bands that were kind of more recently signed get some notoriety. Because of ballads, and I have on here L.A. Guns and Faster Pussycat with the Ballad of Jane and a House of Pain. And L.A. Guns, I will say though, they were a little bit earlier. You know, they were probably right around the same time the Poison got signed. Yeah, but I mean, they didn't really like blow up though until, if you can call what they did, blow up with um, the ballad. Yeah, and even Faster Pussycat, they, they never had a ton of success. But you know, Wait Me When It's Over went gold. Right. Yeah. Why at, is that? At, House at, of Pain. At that time, you know, you could be. You could release a horrible album and still get it to go gold. Um, we could probably name a few that that uh, would uh, would be about. So we had this last wave, um, which it, you know really watered everything down. You had Trickster, Firehouse, South Gang, Nelson, Junkyard, Slaughter. Who else would you throw in there, Chris? Well, I think one that I remember that was that really kind of starts sitting that whole cookie cutter and that just soft pop type sound. They weren't as big, but a band, I think of a band like Danger Danger. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, heavy keyboards. Yeah, I mean these these bands were just um, I don't know. I mean that's when it just got it really got so over the top cliche. Um, I mean everything about them. You know, and I mean, and there were some bands that, that stood out. And we've talked about this on prior podcasts, but bands like a Bang Tango, you know, I mean, they were they were different. They stood out. That's probably why they didn't have huge success. There were bands like that. There were bands like Love Hate, bands that were a little bit different. That you know, I've I've said before, I've, I've read I read one time before. Somebody thinks that like Love Hate, if it had been just a few years, even later than that, it might would have stood a chance. But at the time when their first album came out, it was still a little bit too much slaughter firehouse. It was a little bit too much of that. And so it didn't stand a chance. So there were some bands doing stuff a little bit different, but the ones that were having the big success, it was that formula we're talking about, release that rock song, release the single. And they all started to sound a little bit the same. 
and it just I don't know it just it it got a little silly yeah you know who could have the biggest hair and you know I have on here that it was pretty much over when um you had uh the Beavis and Butthead portraying um the nerdy kid with the winger shirt and then you had Lars Ulrich throwing a dart at uh Kip Winger during uh, one of the uh, Metallica videos so yeah uh, that leads us up to September the 24th, 1991. Wait, before we even go there, you know, we're talking about glam, and I, and I know you said, because you started this, so I want to kind of touch on this real quick for anybody listening. And, and, and if you planned on wrapping up with this and tell me to shut up and we'll wait wait a little bit later, but you, don't, you said, you know, what did kill glam? We started about the cliché-ness of it. And so I did just want to spend a couple of, just a minute or two talking really specifically about what I think did kill it. And you chime in wherever necessary. Okay. Um, we already talked about, it was, you know, some of the things I put down, it was just oversaturation. You know, and that, you know, so who's to blame for that? Well, the labels, MTV, um, you know, MTV, uh, the radio stations are forcing it down your throat. And, you know, I've said, said so many times before, radio can make anybody popular. You know, you you listen to some of these these. I mean, some of these bands we that we we love that that's come out recently. If radio really wanted to play them, you take. I'm just trying to think of something. Um, Black Star Riders. If radio really wanted to play them and start playing it and playing it like crazy, it would catch on. You know, and I firmly believe that. And so, you know, these record label promotion guys going out and paying the paying the label or paying the radio stations to play these songs, they keep doing that in certain bands that you, you know, people, and this is an easy one to pick on, so it's not, it's almost become, you know, it sounds like you lack originality when you start saying Nickelback, but it is a good example. Everybody talks about how much they hate them. Well, how do they sell so many records? Because people forced it down their throat. Fallout Boy. There's another one. I mean, that's a, a terrible band, god awful band. And sorry if anybody likes Fallout Boy, Boy, but they suck. But they got big because radio kept playing it. So I think there's just that oversaturation by MTV, the labels, uh, radio. Then there's that over the top image that we talked about. You know, like you said, you gotta have you gotta have long hair. Think about how bizarre it was when you saw the drummer of Extreme with short hair. I mean, he might as well have been an alien. You side, know, he didn't have long hair. Side and note. Seriously, he, he might as well have been green. Side note. You know, worst hair of the whole movement was Trickster Drummer. Absolutely. <laughs> Easy. Go ahead. God, that was bad. Um, so just that whole, uh, that, just the whole era, that you know, androgyny, just, it just, uh, it just got over the top. The music, I think, in a lot of ways, the, the lacking substance. You talk about a song like Cherry Pie, and I know Janie, pretty much hated that he wrote that song and it sucks because we talked about before he was a gifted songwriter and he was a he was a good lyricist his ballads are great if you listen to some of the lyrics on those but cherry pie is not an example and that's what a lot of the songs were that type stuff the music kind of lacks substance and then the final thing i'd say as far as what really kind of you know what kind of changed it is just um and we'll, we're going to close with this. I know when we go on the show, but it's just music cyclical. It's going to change, you know. Just whereas we're talking about bands like Slaughter, um, Firehouse, those bands kind of put the the death nail in glam. Well, you 
can say the same thing with grunge bands like Creed, Nickelback, Seven Mary Three. They kind of killed grunge. So I'm going to get off my soapbox. I just want to get that one more point about what I really feel like is kind of paving the way for as you were given that date of September, that big date in September. Right. I kind of I kind of view what, what happened with Glam is, you know, in the medical world, we talk about opportunistic infections. You, when your immune system is weak, whatever can get in there and take over can. And pretty much... Uh, Glam had weakened music's uh, immune system, and grunge was the first thing to uh, to come in, you know. And it, like you said, it, everything is cyclical, you know. And to something to us, it probably didn't seem cyclical because we were so young. That was just kind of what we've always known. So we kind of always thought this is the way it's going to be, you know. Yeah, and but you, and you think about when bands, you know, we just got I guess just got done reading um, Greg Renoff's book, Van Halen Rising. You know, at that time, Van Halen struggled to catch on. He was kind of paving the way for this that we've just been talking about for the last 15 minutes. They were kind of paving the way for that sound. But they really struggled to catch on because you had the new emergence of punk. It was kind of killing, you know, Sabbath and Zeppelin and Deep Purple and all that stuff. It was kind of killing that sound. And you had punk bands and then the well, that was kind of making it tough for these bands to like Van Halen to get signed. And then you had had what was really popular on radio, disco, which lasted way longer, I'm sure, than anybody ever thought it would have. Right. That that's one thing I hope that never comes back. Yeah, you and me both. But I mean, that's just that's perfect examples, though. That <clears throat> I mean, glam kind of came at the came at that right time and pushed pushed those kind of sounds out of the way and kind of the the softer rock of band, you know, stuff like Fleetwood Mac, Mac and um and. Uh, Jackson Brown, those type, you know, those type artists kind of push that a little bit aside. Right. So that leads us up to September the 24th, 1991. Uh, that is the date that Nirvana's second album, Nevermind, was released. So Chris, I did, I did a, a good bit of research. Do you know, so that was released on a Tuesday. Do you know who was the number one album in the country the Sunday before? I don't. Metallica with the Black Album. Okay. Wasn't, I think, you know what's crazy? Wasn't Nirvana, if, if I'm not mistaken, it seems like it was released the same day as uh, the Illusion albums. Um, I think they were released, because I have notes on here, that later in that year, the Illusion albums would be number one. You know, and they did okay. number one. It's, it's, something was released on the same day. I know it's never mind. I can't remember what it was, but anyway. We, we could do an entire show... <laughs> albums that released in 1991. You had Skid Row, Slave to the Grind. You had the first NWA album. You had Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. You had U2, Octung Baby, R.E.M. Out of Time, Metallica, The Black Album, Nevermind, uh, Garth Brooks, one of his big albums came out that year. And, you know, like we said, you had the Illusion albums um, come out that year. But Previously in the year, Skid Row Slave to the Grind debuted at number one on the charts, which was a, a big deal. So you had you still had bands like uh, Skid Row. Uh, you know their their second album was obviously it was a metal album. It wasn't glam like the first one. And you had Metallica's The Black Album. So you still had hard and heavy music, you know, on the charts. And Nirvana, the, the video to Smells Like Teen Spirit was released. And when that happened, just everything kind of blew up. And so there was this emphasis 
on um, um, Seattle, where they were from. Now, if you're just a common, you know, the average music fan, you probably think, well, you know, Nirvana started the Seattle scene. Actually, it's very, very far from that. Um, we're going to reference a book many times during this uh, rest of this podcast called Grunge is Dead. I highly suggest getting it if you're a music fan, even if you're not a fan of grunge. It's it's extremely well-written and a very entertaining book. So, Chris, you've read the book, as I have, uh, and, and you're kind of, I'm sure you're in agreement with me, the, the, the scene, the Seattle scene was not Nirvana's to begin with. It was, it was a, uh, had been building for really about 10 years before that. Well, even decades, because like I said, it's been about a year since I've read this book. I, 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 rec- I re- recommended this book to, to David because I knew he'd like it so much. But, you know, going off the top of my brain, I, I just remember like they were talking about a band called the Sonics and different bands like that kind of in the 60s that were kind of initially lay, you know, paving the way. But like one of the artists that was really big in the very early days, like you're talking about the 10 years leading up or whatever, Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. You know, he, he wasn't like a glam type guy. He was a punk guy. And he played in punk bands and bands that kind of kind of were going into that sound of grunge. Duff McKagan was big in there. You know, Mark Arm of Mudhoney, all the different bands that he was in. Um, the Melvins, to me, are as important as any grunge band. You know, because without, honestly, without the Melvins, you can make the argument, whether true or not, you can at least make an argument that it might not even have been a Nirvana. Right. Yeah, they were basically Kurt Cobain's favorite band, and he was friends with Buzz Osborne. Right. And Buzz turned him on to a lot of the music that he loved. Yeah, like we said, that there was and it was a very incestuous scene. Um, you had bands breaking up, people going from one band to the other. I, I have some of the kind of more important bands in that time leading up, Chris, and you you add who you would like. I have Green River. I have the Melvins. I have Tad, and I have uh, Malfunction. Is there anybody else you would add to that? No, I mean, for, going off from what I can remember, those are, yeah, those are probably the biggest. Um, yeah, those are probably the biggest. I mean, some of it, like I said, it's slipping my mind because it's been so, songs, so long since I've read the book. Um, but yeah, I, would, I, I, think that's, I think that's a good start. So the, the best way I can really kind of classify a lot of this stuff, the bands that we're talking about, uh, you know, it was a little bit punk, a little bit metal, a little bit alternative, and it was just kind of all mixed together. And, you know, and they were, these bands were not doing the things that the Sunset Strip guys were doing. There weren't explosions on stage or light shows or, you know, their hair teased up with hairspray to the moon and back. And they kind of had this sense of community where kind of everybody helped one another. Absolutely. You know, I remember that. Yeah, it was just, you know, hey, you know, our band's playing here. You guys want to play with us? And uh, I think most of them just really didn't um, ever expect to play anywhere outside of Seattle. No, nobody, none of those guys thought they were going to take over the world. I mean, probably the only one that was, seemed to even be interested in taking over the world was probably Andy Wood. You know, the other guys, it didn't even seem like there was an interest in it. Well, yeah, and I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but apparently Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam uh, were that way. And I, I, toward the end, I've got some information on that to, to talk about that. But Well, it makes sense. I mean, they did team up with the biggest rock star in Seattle. Yeah. So the, the reason we talk about Andrew, we go, let's go ahead and talk about Andrew Wood. So 
you'll you know he's one of these people these people that that died re- really young actually died three days before their their big album was supposed to be released he was originally in a band called malfunction and if you read about it in the book their shows were just kind of crazy and all over the place and he would dress up weird and just uh he sounded like a very eccentric person chris yeah he was i mean he would he would i mean he would always he yes bear dressed crazy you know, I think he wore, you see pictures of me, he always has kind of this ghostly look on it because all the white paint he put on his face, glammed out, wore the makeup, really different than anything that was going on in that scene. Now, he wasn't dressed like, you know, poison, but, you know, it had, definitely had those glam elements, maybe, you know, maybe a cross between something like Bowie and, and poison, you know. Um, With a little bit of kiss the, thrown in. Yeah, and the music was just, it was different, you know, it was, um, it wasn't quite grunge, I don't know really how you categorize it, I mean, it's, it was it was, it was just a trio, really, and uh, he played bass in that band, and his brother played guitar, and his brother was a shredder, you know, which, that did not happen with grunge bands, you know, that the guitar solo and all that, just, that went away, and... But malfunction, yeah, they he was shredding, and it was it, they, malfunction was definitely doing something completely different on the scene. Yeah, and he was it, you know, he was like you said, he was in malfunction. At the same time, there was another band that uh, was had a, a good following that a lot of people thought may have had a chance to be big, and that's called Green River, and that had Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam, and then um, uh, was it Mark, Mark Arm? Yeah, from, Mark Arm of Mudhoney from Mudhoney. And that Green River broke up and Malfunction broke up and pretty much Andrew Wood went into, um, uh, you know, joined with them and formed this band called Mother Love Bone. Now, if you're familiar with the single soundtrack, which the single soundtrack was one of the things that were kind of where corporate America exploited the scene. But the soundtrack was very essential to a lot of these bands blowing up. And if I if I remember correctly, it had the selection Chloe Crown of Thorns on it. Is that right, Chris? Yeah. And so if you if you listen to Mother Love Bone, they are almost like a fifty fifty split between glam and what most people would consider grunge. Would you agree with that? Perfect, perfect crossover band. You know, they definitely had. Yeah, they definitely kind of rode right down the middle. And I think if they, you know, if they had a. If they had of if, if Andy had of lived, you know, I, I was telling you that a friend, a mutual friend of ours, asked, "Hey, do you think Mother Love Bone would have been big?" And I told him, "I think they definitely would have been had a lot of success. I don't think they. I mean, they wouldn't. In my opinion, they never would have reached Pearl Jam heights. But I think they would have been on the level of a band like the Cult. I think they would have been that type. Had a sustained career. Um, Cult's another one that kind of rode the line between glam and hard rock, not." grunge to glam and hard rock and i think they would have kind of been at that level um yeah so i do think they would have been i do think they would have been big and it's because that's in that sound was just that perfect little crossover um that i think they could have survived in in the grunge world for sure yeah like we said andrew wood overdoses three days before the album was to be released and obviously that was the end of a mother love bone so, and let's keep in mind that was a major label too. Yeah, they, was a, it was it was a major label, and they had some money behind them. Yeah, I they, mean, it was there was going to be a push. Not, yeah, this was not any like okay, we're we're just surprised if it had a if it had been successful. This wasn't any oh we're surprised it made it. No, they thought 
the, the label really thought they were going to be huge. Um, and like I said, they might have been. And But if you say that you're going to have the level of the cult, that almost is kind of being huge because the cult was really big for a time. Right. But, but the, yeah, they absolutely were supposed to be the ones that broke out of Seattle. And I think they would have been. But, um, you know, Andrew Wood just he had that – he had that – those evil demons that wound up affecting pretty much everybody in that scene. Exactly. Um, so before them, there were two heavier bands that, uh, uh, that were starting that were really gaining some momentum, at least in the Seattle scene and some in the, as far as like getting some awareness from record labels. And that would be Soundgarden and the Melvins. Um, you know, and a lot of their, you know, Soundgarden, a lot of their stuff, you could just say is heavy metal. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Yeah, especially, you know, especially the, the early, you know, their early stuff, you know, from, well, really all the way up through Bad Motorfinger. You know, so what the, I guess that's three records. Right. And all of those were, yeah, I mean, they were, it was, it was a little bit of grunge with a little bit of Sabbath. Yeah, very riff heavy uh, in Oregon. And of course, you know, Chris Cornell is one of the great vocalists of all time, regardless of um, um, regardless of genre. Chris, why don't you uh, take a second to kind of explain the Melvins? You're, you know, obviously you're a big, much bigger fan of them than I am. So, uh, why don't you kind of explain how the Melvins fit into the scene? Well, I would say this for anybody that's that's not heard the Melvins, but maybe you're fairly well versed in Nirvana. I think that. The first Nirvana record, if you've heard that, Bleach, which probably most Nirvana fans have heard that record. Um, I think that sound really picked up a lot of Nirvana's. I mean, Nirvana got a lot of that sound from the from um, from the Melvins. You know, I told you when you when you asked what songs I wanted to put on your playlist, I said Nirvana, Negative Creep, Negative Creep. If I just hear that for a second, I'm not paying attention, and maybe it comes on because I have that on my gym playlist. I hear that riff come in; it almost sounds like something Buzz Osborne would do. Um, Buzz Osborne is, uh, you know, it's very he's very riff heavy. He's, uh, I mean, bit huge influenced by bands like Kiss and Sabbath, so he, he has he has metal roots for sure, and you can hear that in his music. But a lot of it is very very sludgy. You know, where he kind of has that some of that, almost that Sabbath type sound, real sludgy, uh, stereotypical. Just what I think of that definitive grunge, just sludgy and sometimes crunchy, just guitar riffs. Uh, great drummer Dale Crover, he played on a lot of um, a lot of Bleach, and Kurt Cobain actually tried to get Dale Crover to play in Nirvana as the drummer, but Crover, you know, he wanted to stay with the Melvins, and. Um, you know, that's probably one that's haunted him a bit over the years because he could have been the Nirvana drummer. And like I said, he's a good drummer. It's not like, oh, well, they had Grohl, who's the, who's a beast. No, Crover's really good. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, sludgy, heavy, heavy, for especially for the, on the heavier side for grunge. But whereas you said, Soundgarden has more of a metal sound. They're more of a metal band. I mean, when I hear the Melvins, it's it's definitely got that grunge sound. Um their records are, they're odd, because you can hear some songs that's almost like, well, that could have done well on on the radio during that time, and it might could have, but then they'll come out with some nine-minute, slow, bizarre sludge fest that 
I mean, it, their records, it's it's a listening experience, just say that. And they put out, God, probably about 30 records at this point. Wow. Um, yeah, Buzz Osborne is very, I mean, they're, they're very prolific when it comes to releasing and putting out material. Um, you know, I, I one time read a review, somebody said, I think it was an Amazon review, actually. Somebody said about, and I thought this was a great way to explain the Melvins. He said, they may not be the best band in the world, but they're the coolest band in the world. Mm-hmm. They're just very, and I, I think I think I understand what they're saying. It's a very cool band, and one that you know I would I would definitely recommend checking out. And you know, when we pick up when we pick some albums toward the end of this that we like, I'll throw out a couple of Melvin's records that I suggest for people to try. Well, another band that was very that was kind of like that that was kind of rose from the ashes of Green River. We've talked about earlier was Mud Honey, and. You, you kind of get the feeling that a lot of people at the time thought it was going to be Soundgarden, the Melvins, or Mudhoney that, that really just blew up. Mudhoney's another one that had that big label backing and all. That they're they're going to be big. I mean, they were even on, um, what was it, Tommy Boy on the movie. Right. But the first band that really got national attention and, and had good album sales was uh, Alice in Chains, who uh, initially started off as, as more of a glam band than you know a grunge band. And the album Facelift, you know, he got a lot of play on MTV with uh, Man in the Box. And that album, to me, was it was much more hard rock slash grunge than it was glam. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of glam elements left at that point. But, you know, they they kind of not got a bad rap. but like, They were goofed on in they, Seattle. Yeah, you they, can call they, it what it is. They were goofed on. Well, and, and one of the reasons was they would open for anyone. Uh, basically, I've seen Jerry Cantrell say this numerous times. Like, look, you know, if a band was coming through Seattle and they needed somebody to open, we would. So they opened for they opened for like Van Halen, Poison, Extreme, Megadeth, all these huge bands. They would just go play. But you've seen those pictures of Lane Staley. I mean, he could have easily fit in as Brett Michaels replacement. Right on looks. I mean, right. he was as glammed out as they come. I'm talking sky high hair. But their sound, though, to me, is just so unique because you have, you know, Lane. You know, we talk about Brian Fallon being able to emote. I put Lane Staley in that same category, and you had the you had the the tandem vocals with Jerry Cantrell and these ha- haunting harmonies and melodies um, that they would go on to do, especially on their next album. But they they got a they were they were the first one I think to really sell enough records to where it would change their lifestyle. And it's really weird when you think about it. Like I said, that they were, and they really were goofed on by people in that scene. And they, because uh, they people thought they were a hair band. You know, they called them cock rock. Right. And you know, we can say, well, yeah, that you know, that first record doesn't even sound that way. But you and I, we haven't heard what they sounded like. You know, before they before they made that album, because right. everything I read is they sounded like a glam band. Right. Yeah. They just kind of didn't fit in um, at, at that point. So the other band that was kind of knocking around was this three-piece band called Nirvana. And they had released an album called Bleach on Sub Pop. And if you're not familiar with Sub Pop, that was the record label that a lot of these guys were on initially. And it's kind of interesting to read in the book just that the the album, I mean, the record that record company was literally just operating month to month. And they had all these amazing artists that would go on to be you know, just mega stars and how poorly run that label was. And that seemed to be like a common thread through the book of Sub Pop owing these bands money. Mm-hmm. 
So and one of those guys that ran it was just not a businessman at all. Right. Yeah. And at all. The other one had a little bit more business sense, but the one was, I mean, I think he was just too busy getting high with the bands. <laughs> well, and so Nirvana put out Bleach, and from, from what I can gather from reading the book, they were like, I don't think people thought they were going to be the band that really did it. They Apparently they were very sporadic in their... Um, um, in their performances, and I don't know if it was Nevermind or Bleach, but they got thrown out of their own album release party. That's I think I, I think I remember that. That's a Spinal Tap moment. Um, yeah, it is. So you know they had Bleach, and Dave Grohl was not in the band. I think they went through several drummers, and I think Grohl came on board just right before Nevermind. Is that how you remembered it, Chris? Yeah, he had nothing to do with Bleach whatsoever. Like I said, Crover played on some of it, of the Melvins. Um, I think there are two or three players on that album. And um, I think they got rid of their drummer because they just didn't, he was inconsistent. You know, they didn't think he was a great player. And that's when they recruited. And I don't remember the connection of how they knew. Um, I think they knew of, of Grohl's band. I think they were called Scream. Yeah. Some And... Uh, and I, I think they just—I think they were aware of his playing, and I, it seems like they may have even been caught on to and been aware through touring. You know, maybe when they were over on the on the East Coast, because isn't is he like a, isn't he a DC guy? Oh yeah, Virginia, yeah, Northern Virginia. Okay. So yeah, so they they released Bleach, and I think it got good reviews. I've even ta- I even like seen several interviews where uh, Steve Gorman and Chris Robinson of the Black Crows talk about what huge fans they were of that album when it came out. And they got signed. I think it was was it Geffen they were on Chris. They got signed. David Geffen Company. Yeah. Yeah. And DGC. They went and recorded Nevermind, which Nevermind is a very polished sounding. Um, it's a very polished sounding album. And you know they release it like we said on September in September of ninety one, and the song smells like Teen Spirit. I, from what I've read, like. Um, Kurt didn't know that was a deodorant <laughs> or something like that. And, and, yeah, it was one of, one of the one of the girl in that band, Bikini Kill. Yeah. And, you know, so they, they make this video. And she it, said, well, she said, she said something like he's somebody, something smelled like Teen Spirit or smelled like Teen Spirit or deodorant. And that's when Cobain was like, oh, okay, there's a song title. Right. But the, the, the video, they released the video and. From then on, you know, history was changed. It became number one in January of '92. Chris, for for the win, do you know what album it displaced? No. Michael Jackson's "Bad." For some reason, I thought I had a feeling you're going to say something something like Michael Jackson. So you, you could say Nirvana dethroned Michael Jackson, which at that time was you know unthinkable. Uh, he was bulletproof, but. The, it blows up. They go from just being these nobodies to, you know, international superstars. And, and a, in the book, it talks about how I forget who they were on tour with. Oh, they were on tour with the Chili Peppers. And they're, you know, the Chili Peppers are touring behind Blood Sugar Sex Magic at that time, which is, you know, one of the biggest albums of the 90s. And Nirvana's album is number one in the country, and they're opening for the Chili Peppers. And. At this point, everybody started focusing their attention on Seattle. And you had the singles, the movie singles that Cameron Crowe directed come out. And they put together this, basically, this who's who of the Seattle scene at the time soundtrack. 
and it, you know, there was this famous MTV singles, you know, movie uh, release party that Alice in Chains played at, and you know, out, members of uh, Pearl Jam and I think Alice in Chains were actually in a fictional band in the movie. Yeah, they, yeah, Vetter was like a guitarist or something like that in Matt Dillon's band. Yeah, and so it was at this point. Corporate America was getting ready to take over. The, the The clothes that these people were wearing were, you know, the 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 Doc Martens, the flannels, the the ripped jeans, cut off shorts, cut off shorts, just everywhere. And I've we've gone this far, and we've neglected to talk about Pearl Jam, uh, who, you know, got this singer from Northern California, Eddie Vedder, to go along with. Basically, Stone Gossard and Jeff, Jeff uh, Ament were um, uh, writing all of this material, and they released the album Ten, which really, at first, didn't really take off. And then, you know, the song Alive, and you had Even Flow, and Jeremy, you know, and Jeremy, one of the more iconic videos of that time, they blew up as well. And there seemed to be this, like, kind of constant friction between Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and the the book kind of doesn't paint Eddie Vedder in the best light at times. Uh, several people from other bands would be like, Vedder would say to him, "Don't tell him I hang out with Chris Cornell. They're gonna think I'm a poser rock star because I hang out with Chris Cornell." And there seemed to be uh, this guy said like, "Look, I would see Eddie, and I would I would just want to say, hey Eddie, how are you?" And before I knew it, he's like talking to me about all these deep social concerns, and you know he's. Um, uh, you know, this deep philosophical discussions. And he's like, man, I just wanted to say hello to my friend. I didn't want to try to save the world, you know? And so there seemed to be this kind of, you know, back and forth between Nirvana and Pearl Jam. The book kind of acted like the media made more out of it than it was. But then there were several interviews in the book that kind of portrayed Vetter as being like very consumed with his rock star image. Yeah. I, I remember some of that. Um, I also remember one of the some of the, one of the guys that said in, the, in that book, I can't remember who it was, somebody from one of the bands that was you know, fairly successful was like, you know, Eddie Vedder should thank his lucky stars that Andy Wood is not around. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because they knew that that band was going to be big. So, yeah, he just he fell in the you know, right place at the right time. So and, after sorry, you know, after singles, you know, you had um, Soundgarden releasing Bad Motor Finger. Alice in Change released Dirt. Dirt just blew up. Album was huge. You had Alice in Change writing for like, you know, the Last Action Hero soundtrack. They were they were getting all of this uh publicity and Pearl Jam, you know, would go on to release their second album, Versus, which was really big. I, I remember they premiered the song Animal on uh, the MTV Music Awards and then, you know, Neil Young came out and played uh, Rockin' in the Free World with them, and they kind of adopted Neil Young, and he got the moniker the godfather of grunge at this time. And So whatever movement <laughs> they had had basically been hijacked by the media and, you know, Madison Avenue and, the, you know, the big record companies. And it, it seemed that all of the bands basically changed overnight as soon as they blew up. Talks in the book about how the members of Soundgarden were just so hard to be around, you know, and, and the, the drug use that ran rampant through these bands is, is legendary. Uh, 
you know, Lane Staley, one of the most notorious heroin addicts, you know, it killed him. You had, you know, Cornell suffered addiction. Jerry Cantrell was really messed up, you know. Uh, Vetter, I think, had, you know, Vetter and Mike McCready, I think, had bad alcohol problems. But, you know, at the time, you know, and, and who knows what he was really doing, but at the time, I can tell you that Cornell had a reputation as being a, a clean guy. Now, I know he drank a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I know with what recently happened with him, it was some prescription bill so he must i guess he was addicted in that way but you know if you watch the uh, which i'd highly recommend um there if you like if you've heard mother love bone and you like him and you just want to kind of explore some more of, of andrew wood's works there's something called the andrew wood story and it's um it's got some of his solo work it's got the basically the the malfunction album that came out, uh, and it's got a it's got a DVD with a documentary, and you you, you probably actually can find that documentary on on YouTube, it's, uh, the Andrew Wood story. And Andrew Wood was having such a problem with drugs, he moved in with um, Chris Cornell because Chris Cornell was known as one of the sober guys, and he he went with him to try to basically to try to stay clean. And of course, that's why they they developed a really strong friendship, and so. People that are listening to this, if they have an interest in drugs, they probably already know that uh, Temple of the Dog was about Andrew Wood. It was made for Andrew Wood, you know, because that was that was Chris Cornell's buddy, his roommate, his buddy, and um, that's where that comes from. But yeah, I mean, he was he was one of the more clean guys in that scene because all the other ones. Was it been a while since again I've read the book? But wasn't even Mark Arm? Wasn't he a big heroin guy too? Yeah, they. I mean, they. Uh, at the end of the book, it goes into like the pretty much the drug history of everybody, you know. And I think he was the one that said, you know, like I don't wear that on my sleeve as like a rock star badge. Like I'm very embarrassed by what I did during, during those years, you know. He's like, yeah. it's, it's not something I brag about, and it, you know, obviously it just overtook Kurt Cobain. That in the book where he talks about the leading up to the last few days of his life, you know, and. I thought this was interesting. So a couple of days before he died, he's flying from, I guess, L.A. to Seattle, and he winds up sitting next to Duff McKagan the whole time. And uh, he and Duff wound up standing in, like, you know, get their baggage. And Duff's friend was talking to him as well. And Duff and his friend went to go get um, uh, their luggage. And his friend told Duff, he said, I think we ought to ask your buddy Kurt if he wants to go home with us. He seems really bummed well while they were talking about it kurt's car pulled up and uh you know he left he died just a couple of days later and so duff's just kind of got like this well what could have possibly have happened you know yeah because duff was duff was clean at the time right um no he was trying he was trying to because he said they said they kind of talked about you know what it was like to struggle with all of that so basically Everything was focused on Seattle and, you know, the image, the sound. And you had these guys that became rock stars, but quote-unquote didn't want to be rock stars. But I'll get on a soapbox for a second. If you don't want to be a rock star, you don't sign with Geffen. You know? No, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, Kurt Cobain, I think, wanted, wanted it more than he thought he did. And once he had it, he hated it. Right. It, it, in the book, it's numerous instances where uh, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were telling everybody, "We want to be huge. You know, we're going to do whatever it takes. We want this to change our life and be like, you know, we want to make a lot of money off of this." And other people are like, "Oh, you know, you're a poser and 
you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember now to talk about it. I remember uh, Jeff Amon being really big about trying to make it. You know, didn't hold any, you know, didn't hold any punches. I mean, he wanted to be big, which, hey, great. Right. You know, it happened for him. And we talk about how the tide turned. You know, this famous story. Janie Lane walks into Columbia Records, and they're getting ready to release Dog Eat Dog, which was a phenomenal album. If you're listening to this, go. if you have preconceived notions about Nirvana being a glam band, go listen to Dog Eat Dog. But he walks into the offices, and the day before, his record was over the, you know, when you walked into the office over the receptionist desk, and he walks in now, and it's Alice in Chains' Dirt. And that was pretty much the end of, uh, of that music having uh, any kind of commercial viability well seattle had become la you know and um and so you start having just like bands from outside of la they'd move there i think band, i mean bands were moving from um you know moving to seattle you know i mean i know courtney love has given you know kevin martin of candlebox a lot of hell because she says that he's a poser and moved there but his, his family moved there when he was like 16 or so he actually did live there he didn't move there for that she actually did you know she would think was living in oregon and moved up there and then you have bands like you asked me the yes the other day was did i think stone temple pilots was a grunge band absolutely they were but you know they were from outside of seattle so you started getting more of that it just became so big it became what glam was it just didn't last as long as glam and on the tail end of, of, of its heyday, you had, uh, you know, you had Nirvana releasing in utero, and you had um, uh, Soundgarden releasing Super Unknown, which was the band, this album that just made them international superstars. Actually, their next two albums were really big. Uh, you had Alice in Chains doing Dirt, then Alice in Chains went in the studio in seven days, knocked out the Jar of Flies EP, and uh, you know he went to number one on the charts behind uh, No Excuses. And, you know, you had Nirvana doing MTV Unplugged. You know, at the very end, you had Alice in Chains doing MTV Unplugged. And you had a super group form, Mad Season, which was Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, uh, Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, and, uh, gosh, I, f- f- the drummer. And those two guys actually formed that band, too. Kind of, I remember they started working on each with each other when they were both trying to recover. Yeah. You know, they were both trying to do Mad Season sober. And, and I had- think... Uh, I think that McCready kind of reached out to Lane Staley, kind of trying to help him. Yeah, he did. Yeah, McCready was getting McCready was getting sober. Yeah, it says that. Yeah, you're right. It says that in the book. They, somebody told Lane Staley, "You need to you need to really do this and hang out with him because he's clean now." Uh, and, and I believe they had the drummer or the bass player from the Screaming Trees. I can't remember all the members, but they were billed as they were billed as a grunge supergroup. That's how big you know everything had gotten. So much like uh, what happened with in in L.A. in the late 80s with everybody in L.A. getting signed, you had people from Seattle getting signed or you had people that sounded like they were from Seattle getting signed. Um, bands like Seven and Mary Three, uh, Dishwalla. Who, who are some of the other ones that you can think of, Chris? Man, I can't really. Mine's kind of slipping right now. But there were, I mean, even, I mean, you can even say, even though I don't think they, they should be considered a glam, or a grunge band at all. But you could even say bands like Candlebox. Korean. You know, there was at least there was at least a little bit of that grunge sound. Scott Stapp definitely tried to do the Pearl Jam, you know, vocals. Um, yeah, I mean, so there there were there were a lot of them. A lot of them we're just not thinking of because they're just not really well remembered. But well, you know, and just like you had with like um, 
the replacements and bands like that in the early 80s, they referred to as post-punk. These bands were referred to as post-grunge. Yeah, so you started getting that transition period. Um, you know, and it's just the... And I think, too, you know, some of it seems like... And I think a lot of those bands that started trying to capitalize off of grunge, they were kind of posers, just trying to act, oh, well, I'm depressed, let me stare at the floor. But I think the, the ones, you know, like... You know, like Alice in Chains, you know, like Nirvana, all these bands, I think it was real. You know, you think about L.A. and bands like Motley Crue having fun and all they want to do is drugs and score chicks all day and partying. And that's that's what they that's what they did. The Seattle guys, it was from a they were coming from a dark place. I mean, that's why it came out in their music. Just like, you know, if you're Motley Crue, sunshine and oceans and beaches and partying going to get that kind of coming out in your music. In Seattle, it was always raining, major, major drug problems going on there, and it came out in their music. You yeah. broke broken homes, um, and, this, and it came out. And it's really, the addiction that was there, you know, it really is strong. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you felt the same way. You know, the, the tough, to, it was tough to read about the stuff with um, Andy Wood and, uh, and, Lane, and Lane Staley, especially Lane Staley, where he's holed up in his apartment. Right, you know, and, I mean, it was and, just and, sad. Yeah, and people, you know, tried to get him help, and he goes, "I'm never going to quit. This is this is me. This is what it's going to be." And th- to and me, he wanted to though. He wanted to get sober. He tried. He just knew he wasn't capable of it. We, if you read the lyrics to Dirt, it's basically it's it's the life of a heroin addict. And like Jerry Cantrell said, he wrote from a place of realism on that album that. Most people can't, and he's like, that movie's that album's great, but it's dark, it's moody, you know. And he said it was it was what he was really going through, you know. The the uh, junkhead, which I put on the playlist, you know, um, you know, it's just about hey, I'll do whatever you've got, you know. Um, just sad, and you know, it's like I, I think when we had Todd Poole on one of our shows, you know, we were we were talking to him about that Seattle sound and how. You know, it was so gloomy, and he's like, "Have you ever been there?" You know. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was their life, you know, and it's just it's sad what happened to that because when you think about the biggest bands, the biggest bands of that era. Okay, well, Allison Change, you had Lane, you had Lane Staley that died. But let's not forget Mike Starr too, the bassist. Right. Both died of drug overdoses. You have, you know, you have just recently Chris Cornell, you know, getting high and and hanging himself you know that's what people think happened is that he was high on this medication um and then you have you know kurt cobain killing himself you just recently had scott wyland i know he wasn't from seattle but he's still part of that you know kind of grouped in with that scene it's like all the bands that were big seems like without pearl except for pearl jam seems like they've all seems like they've all lost their finger yeah, you know and that's it, it, that's really weird and Pearl Jam, they just really got away from any type of a grunge sound after Vitology. And for lack of a better word, they're a jam band version of a hard rock slash punk band now. And they have a, this huge following. That, you know, they, don't, they don't play the same show night after night. And you know they really persevered and, and, and got through some bad times themselves with the Ticketmaster issues. But yeah, you're right. There, there, there really can't be a renaissance of grunge music like we're having with the 80s bands because there's nobody left yeah they're going to get in there okay so we just you know you got um allison chains whatever i can't i don't know what the guy's name is but you know they got a replacement for 
and he sounds a lot like Lane Staley. And then I just heard the the other night they were playing, you know, a big announcement. It was this Pearl Jam, basically this, I mean, not Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, this show where they're going to introduce their new singer, Jeff Goot. And he sounds a lot like Scott Wyland. I mean, they're, <laughs> these bands, if they want to stay together, they have to go get new singers because they're losing. I mean, all of them seems like have been lost. And um, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's depressing, you know, and it kind of, when you see, when you think about that period was dark and it's like, oh, everybody's angry with their parents and all that. Well, you see that it was probably real, you know, and not just put on because they were coming from a very dark place. That's why they were, you know, dying of, of heroin overdoses, killing themselves. It was, they didn't come up in the best environments. No, whereas L.A. was all cocaine and alcohol. It was just heroin up in Seattle, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Chris, I, I think uh, my verdict is that uh, um, Glam injured itself to such an extent that uh, something else was going to come in and take over and grunge happened to be the, the, the thing that was laying around waiting on that to happen. It did. You know, like I said, music cyclical. For, you know, unfortunately, we don't have anything with rock as far as in the mainstream right now. I'm just right now. We're not even hoping for, we're not, it's not necessarily waiting for the next big change in rock. We're just waiting for rock, you know, in the mainstream, which I do think it'll eventually come back. I really do. Just like I said before, I think classic country, leave this what they call bro country this god awful stuff and we're trying to fuse hip hop and in country I think that'll die and I think you'll get because you're already seeing signs of it with guys like Stapleton and Sturgill Simpson coming in um, Jason is hopefully that, yeah hopefully that happens you know and they'll come back and I think it will come back it may not be it may not all sound like George Jones but I think it may maybe it gets more to that Travis Tripp type sound just a little bit more traditional sound hopefully rock is going to come back but grunge you know glam in a way, killed itself, you know, and you had, like I said, the labels, you had just oversaturation. Well, with grunge, it became an oversaturation as well. Music cyclical, it was time for change. Um, and just like, you know, a lot of the reason why we don't see those bands are still having a lot of success, like I said, a lot of them are gone now. But you think about grunge, you know, Pearl Jam survived, and they are still, you know, selling out, you know, shows are still playing to very, very large crowds. So they're kind of like the band that made it and lasted. Nirvana could have, and I think they would have. You know, on some level, you got Alice in Chains with their new singer. They do okay. Soundgarden was doing really well when Chris Cornell got in the back in the band. And then you go back over to Glam. You look at Bon Jovi. They survived it. Again, sorry, John Bon Jovi. You were Glam, and I will always consider you a Glam band. Um, they survived. Guns N' Roses would have been huge had they stayed together. You see what they're doing right now, all the places they're selling out. And Van Halen, they're not completely grunge. They kind of, I mean, glam. They kind of teetered on that rock and, and glam at times. They were able to last through it. You have Def Leppard and Motley Crue to some extent. So just a few survive, you know. And, um, you know, we, we talk about, like, if you go see L.A. Guns, you're going to play see them playing to hardly anybody now. Well, if Mudhoney happened to come through Memphis, I guarantee you there wouldn't be a lot of people there. You know, whereas in 1993, it probably would have sold out a, a small venue in Memphis. Right. So it's just, it's just, it's just the changes. Well, Chris, as we wrap this up, who are some of your favorite bands from this era? 
You know, my favorite one, I would say, is um, even though we've already talked about they weren't as just cut and dry grunge, but I have to go with Mother Love Bone. They were my favorite. You know, very, very small sample of music. But if you haven't listened to them, you know, check out the album Apple. Um, it's an amazing record. No filler at all. Nirvana, I know they were the biggest one. So, you know, I... But I don't care. They were worth. They were. They were worthy of the praise they got. Yeah, I put them as as my number two. I, I love that band. Um, the other ones that I really liked. Uh, I love the Melvins. I still listen to the Melvins pretty re- pretty pretty regularly to this day. Uh, like I said, they re- they released so many. It's almost hard to keep up with them. They they put out so much music. Um, Alice in Chains. I really liked Alice in Chains. I don't really listen to them now with the new singer, but I like those records with Lane. And uh, and Pearl Jam, you know, I think Pearl Jam. It's um, they put out a a good, a pretty good catalog of music. And those, if I had to pick five, those are probably my five. It's a, a good five. Um, I, I by far my favorite is Alice in Chains. I, you know, if if I had to rank like my favorite albums of all time, Dirt would be in my top five for sure. Uh, but I've I've mentioned this numerous times on this podcast. I don't really listen to it anymore because it it is so. It's so dark, and you know, you think about what happened to him. It, it, it makes it even, you know, it makes it even darker. I really liked uh, several songs on that uh, the Mad Season album, uh, "River of Deceit," uh, "I'm Above," and "I Don't Know Anything." Uh, were songs that I that I still listen to to this day. Uh, Soundgarden is a band that um, um, I, I've grown to like more as time has gone on. Uh, I loved the Super Unknown album when it came out, and I saw them um, on the at Lollapalooza with uh, Metallica, and I, w- I was really excited. It was when Blow the um, oh, Down on the Upside had come out, and I was really excited to see them. and And I may have mentioned this podcast. They're the second worst live band I've ever seen, at least that for that one show. Well, they actually, there's some times I read in that book where they put out some really bad performances. You know, Chris Cornell's voice was so unique that if it wasn't on point, though, it didn't sound, it sounded out of, out of, out of key for lack of a Well, see, that's term. probably my part of, with, probably my problem with Soundgarden, and I don't dislike Soundgarden, you know, although I dislike their most popular song, but I'm not, I don't dislike them, and I, you know, I, I've, I own several of their records, but the problem is Chris Cornell as gifted as he was vocally, he could get annoying. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with what what you're saying. He has one of the like, uh, you know, now this almost screechy. Yeah, at times. Um, yeah, I, Chris, you want to know who the worst live band I've ever seen is? Oh. Puddle of Mud. Well, they're not a good band on the record. <laughs> uh, anyway. Hey, and there's another one for that post-grunge. Yeah, yeah. That's... There's another band. We were trying to think of examples. There's there's, there's your one right there. So, you know. Uh, Who else you got? You uh, three of them. I would, I would throw Stone Temple Pilots in there, but, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you're going to, you're going to say this falls in line with, with how I look at things. I'm not a big fan of the core album, just like I'm not a big fan of Pearl Jam 10. Uh, there's some songs on core that I like, but I just don't hold it in high regard like everybody else does. Their next two albums I really like. Um, but you know, the, man, I love that sex type thing. That's my oh, favorite song by them. Oh yeah, that and Cracker Man off the off that album are, are phenomenal. But other than that, like I, I don't. Oh, I love I like Pearl Jam, but I've gotten to the point where I don't view Pearl Jam 
really is a grunge band anymore. Uh, and and I'll be honest with you. Well, this- even even better will say his vocals are very grungy on on ten. Yeah, but it- after that. Not as much. Yeah, I loved I loved their Yield album. Uh, I love the what they call the Avocado album, the self-titled one that came out uh, about ten years ago. And actually, Brendan O'Brien just remixed it, and I just saw where they just released it out. And I was listening to it today. It's got a little more crunch to it, but uh, a lot of their uh, latter stuff um, I- I've enjoyed. But like I said, you know, I almost when we were doing this, I almost forgot to talk about them. Just the simple fact that I. Th- to me, his vocals style changed so much after 10. You know, and they released the No Code album that was very kind of experimental and all over the place. Um, I just didn't, don't really think of them sometimes as, uh, as grunge. Had a discussion with my friend Bobby at work. Um, he's a big believer that Smashing Pumpkins are grunge. What, what, what's your thought on that, Chris? Disagree, disagree completely. Yeah, you know, um, and when I... You when know, I, I, okay, I can say Gish was kind of a grunge record, but it was almost, in the way you talk about Soundgarden, Gish was almost a metal record. Yeah, sound, uh, Smashing mean, Pumpkins. He- it was heavy as hell, that album was, Gish. Yeah, yeah you know. by far my favorite album of theirs. Some of their stuff is really heavy, but, you know, I ha- we had uh, had good discussion online this week with people when I was researching this topic, and, you know, uh, you have varying varying degrees of opinions about Stone Temple Pilots and, and Smashing Pumpkins, but, uh all in all, I, I I don't think it's a it's a type of music that's going to be able to uh, really have a, a comeback because there's no, there's no, nobody there to do it. Because you look at okay, we've got Guns and Roses are back together now, and um, I know people that probably want to crap all over their glam will want to laugh at me by even mentioning this band. But you have somebody like L.A. Guns, Phil Lewis, and Tracy getting back together, and you know our our new friend Todd Poole, you know, getting Roxy back together. I mention that because there seems to be more of a desire for this rock again. And some of these bands where nobody had come see them, they're starting to find an audience. You know, I got, I got, um, we both got tagged in, um, on, uh, Facebook from one of our, you know, from our Potter than hell buddies about a Tora Tora, a show, you know, they're starting to tour more. You're starting to see more of that. And, glam that's going to be hard to do i mean grunge it's going to be hard to do there's just not many of them yeah it'd be like the pearl jam festival and you'd have you know maybe the melvins and mudhoney show up and um you know yeah and play. you know and you you could try to get you know as far as i know you know tad is you know the guy's still around you know can't remember his name i know it's tadding i know tad is his name but um yeah they're just like but it seems like the guys that were, were not as big bands like Tad, like the Screaming Trees, it's almost like people don't even remember them. Which, yeah. by the way, Screaming Trees is another great, great band. Yeah, and they kind of they 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 kind of walk the line of of, of not they kind of dip their toes in a little psychedelia and uh, and hard rock as well. Um, yeah. Well, Chris, I've. I've enjoyed uh, talking about this. I, I think it's going to turn out pretty good. Yeah, well, I just could, I would just say because I did say I was going to go back to this. I'm just going to name a few. You know, there's just a few albums to check out. Um, every, you know, again, Mother Love Bone Apple. If you haven't listened to that, is a great album. Um, some of the ones are a little less known. You know, I'm just going to Mother Love Bone. I would say Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion was a great album. Um, Mud Honey, 
Superfund's Big Muff, which started out as an EP. I mean, that was definitely one of the first really grunge records. Um, with the Melvins, I'd say uh, their two their two major label albums are good starters because those they um, like all like what was happening in LA. All these glam bands started getting signed left and right. They're going and signing just about everybody. And the Melvins are they're great, but they're not the most marketable band. But they got on. I believe they were with A and M. Check out Houdini. Came out in '93. I know I put, gave you a song from that album to put on the playlist. Stone and Witch of '94. The Melvins are still putting out good albums. Maybe my favorite Melvins album came out in 2006. It's called A Senile Animal. Really, really good record. It's probably going to be a little bit more accessible than most of their albums for people if you're not used to them. And then I decided to wrap up just naming a few of the other, that the mainstream albums that I really do love. You know, Nirvana, Nevermind, Pearl Jam 10, yeah, Alice in Chains, Dirt. I'm with you on that one. Um, those are some of the albums I really, really like. Well, those are uh, that's plenty to listen to over the holidays. You can throw that in while you're watching football and suffering from your tryptophan coma from um, eating all that turkey. Um, Absolutely. I hope we hope everybody out there has a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, next, the next two weeks for sure. I'm going to be out of town on vacation. I I recorded a uh, episode yesterday with Chris Sinzak of uh, Decibel Geek uh, to kind of fill in while I'm out of town but after that Chris and I'll, I'll be back maybe for one or two shows in December and then um, we, we are really working on some big things for um, the beginning of the year uh, the, the podcast is going to take kind of another leap so uh, I really appreciate everybody that's been listening to us our, our listener numbers go up every week I'm able to see kind of where everybody's from it's people from all over the world actually listening and we really appreciate that. Really appreciate all the feedback people give us online. And um, other than that, uh, I hope everybody has a uh, very happy Thanksgiving. And uh, like I said, you'll you'll hear a record uh, a conversation that Chris Sinzak and I had. You'll hear that next week, and then we'll probably have that next week off. I'll still be uh, getting back from my vacation, but then uh, Chris and I'll be back. And at some point in December, we'll do our end of the year uh, favorite albums episode. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But other than that, we hope everybody has a good Thanksgiving and uh, be safe and we'll see you soon.